Well, good morning to everyone this morning. I want to say good morning to you that are watching online as well. And I want to thank you for prioritizing time to gather with your faith family, even during these times of COVID, uh, to be able to do so from home at this time. So this week is our fourth week in a five-week series of going through, looking at our core convictions. And usually the bread and butter of, of where I love to find myself preaching, and we're going to begin doing this very soon, is preaching through books of the Bible. And uh, that doesn't always mean that we take every verse and look at every word and every verse, but that we're going to take units and go through that. So, so be preparing yourself. We're going to be looking at the book of Ephesians starting on February 21st. And so if you want to be reading ahead and, and getting there in Ephesians, we're going to be beginning on February 21st. And that's going to be a six-week series through the book of Ephesians, taking about a chapter a week and looking at that. So that's going to be a wonderful time together. But today, we, we in our core conviction series are going to be looking at this core conviction that if we're going to be a biblically thriving church, then we must be, and we've already gone over these, and I want you to see how they're kind of building on top of each other. And, and the thing is, for us as a church, when I say these, these core convictions, they apply to you in your home, uh, to you as an individual, to you as a family. Um, they apply to you so that these same realities that we're talking about what, what result in a biblically thriving church also result in a biblically thriving family or in a biblically thriving individual or a biblically thriving marriage. And so just know that this applies right into the home. So if you're like, man, this series has not really applied to me personally, it really has. And in fact, that's why when we looked at servant-led in particular, that Paul again and again says that, that when he's looking at leaders, he says, what is this person like in the home? In other words, if he can't lead his home well, how's he going to lead in the church well? And so there's a reason for that. It's the same formulas in a very real way. And so the first thing that, we, that we've established as a core conviction for who we are is we must be, we must be Scripture fed. And that is foundational because even as we come today and we're going to look at we must be Christ-centered, we can say that and then we can, if we depart from this, make it mean whatever we want it to mean. We can get creative we can start to, to slap the name of Jesus on pretty much anything. In other words, you can baptize any ideology. You can baptize any ministry effort. You can baptize any bumper sticker if you want to. But that's not healthy. And so that's why the order has been what it's been for me. Is because a lot of people say Jesus, but it is not consistent with who Jesus is. And that's an important reality for us to establish today and why it's important that we must first and foremost, be Scripture-fed. We must be Scripture-fed. Second, we must be servant-led. This is God's ordained method for leadership, both in the home, is for the leader of the home to be a servant to the family, not lording it over them, not it's my way or the highway, but serving his family, laying down his, his life or his wife, um, leading his children, um, raising them in the fear and the admonition of the Lord, um, not exasperating them. I mean, Paul is so clear with what a servant leader is going to look like in the home, and then he's so clear about what a servant leader is going to look like in the church. And these two offices that have been established, that of an overseer or a pastor, is in the office of deacon, are these two serving functions. Their, their service looks different, and we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit more today. But it's important to see that just as Christ came to, to lay his life down, not coming saying, what can, 
everyone do for me, but, but coming not looking for things to be done for him, but coming to do something for us and to lay his life down, so are we to be that kind of servant. And that's how Christ is seen. Third, we saw last week that we must be spirit-filled. We must be spirit-filled. And we see that as the church was being scripture-fed and acts, and we see as they were um, being servant-led and being led into these times of prayer, that then the Spirit would be poured out on their community, and they would go out boldly proclaiming the gospel. And so we looked at last week that we are powerless to make disciples of all nations, to obey and fulfill the Great Commission apart from the Spirit of God. And so therefore, just as it was in the early church, so it must it be for us today that we need to be in a humble position of seeking the Lord according to his word and asking him to fill us that we might go out and obey the, the great commission to make disciples of all nations. And so today, as we see this culmination of things coming, we, we come to this reality that we, in order to be a biblically thriving church, must be Christ-centered. And what I want us to see today and, and spend our time to doing today is looking at Acts, I mean, I'm sorry, at Luke 24, at Luke 24. And so I invite you at home to turn to Luke 24 and you in the room today to turn to Luke chapter 24. Now we're going to turn there in just a moment, but it kind of set the stage for what we're going to consider today about what it means for us to be Christ-centered. I want you to hear this statement that I've heard so many times. He is so self-centered. He's so self-centered. Now, what people usually say about a self-centered person is this, that this person is prideful. They're selfish. They're insensitive. They're egotistical. They're always asking, what's in it for me? A person for whom most people have little regard, even if they eventually cave into that person's demands. A self-centered person always has to one-up others. Um, he is always, he or she is always looking at the world through the lenses of how does this impact or benefit me? And, and is usually craving the praise of men. That's what it means to be self-centered. That's when self is at the center of what is important, of, of your decisions, of, of how you spend your time and your money when self is there. I really want us to grasp the essence of what it means to center on something, even if that's through a negative example of self. Every opportunity is run through the question, how does it benefit me? Money is seen as a way of benefiting myself. Time is a commodity to benefit myself. Relationships are primarily desired and enjoyable if they make me feel good. I do things, I go places, I wear things, I talk about things because they'll cause me to be well thought of. Even when it comes to religion, a self-centered person thinks in terms of, do I enjoy the music? Uh, how will I be seen in light of my association with this church? Who attends this church and would a, attending allow me to be associated with that person in maybe a positive way? Are the sermons helpful in a way that allows me to have a better week? Do my kids like it? Now, by this point, you're probably thinking, good grief, Chad. I feel like you're saying I'm a self-centered person because I'm concerned about my children, because I'm, I'm conscious of social dynamics, because I, I ever spend money on myself, because I sometimes tell a story where I did something right and was the hero of the story, or even just because I want to grow. Well, please hear me in love. You and I do tend to be self-centered. And even our seeming attempts at being focused on something good 
like our children, can sometimes, if we're honest, be more about us. My kid is the best. My kid is the brightest. My kid is the prettiest or the strongest. My, my kid has the most challenges. My kid. And like someone who has an addiction, we're usually the last one to realize we have a selfie problem. And what the world, as C.S. Lewis wrote, would have us to think is that we need, in order to correct that, to think less of ourselves, to kind of begin to think poorly of yourselves as the solution. Yet our thoughts still revolve around self. I'm still thinking about me and about how bad I am or how, uh, you know, how, how I shouldn't be the way that I am, but I'm still just thinking about me. But as C.S. Lewis continues, the call is actually to think of ourselves less. Not think less of ourselves, but to think of ourselves less. And then when thinking of ourselves less, God's word calls us to fix our eyes on Jesus. God's word calls us today as a church and as individuals and couples and families to be christ centered. And what we will see today, FBNO, is that we must be Christ-centered in order to be a biblically thriving church. And so, turning in God's Word to Luke 24, I invite you to stand for the reading of God's Word, acknowledging that it is God who speaks by His Word. This isn't Chad. This is the Lord speaking to His people. And so, I'm going to begin in verse 1 and read down through the end of the chapter to really capture the context of this passage. Beginning in verse 1 in Luke chapter 24. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, they came to the tomb, bringing the spices they had prepared. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. They went in but did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, suddenly two men stood by them in dazzling clothes. So the women were terrified and bowed down to the ground. Why are you looking for the living among the dead? Asked the men. He's not here. He has risen. Remember how he spoke to you when he was still in Galilee, saying, it is necessary that the Son of Man be betrayed into the hands of sinful men, be crucified, and rise on the third day. And they remembered his words. Remembering, I mean, returning from the tomb, they reported all these things to the eleven and all the rest. Mary Magdalene, Joanna, Mary, the mother of James, and the other women were with them, were with them telling the apostles these things. But these words seemed like nonsense to them, and they did not believe the women. Peter, however, got up and ran to the tomb. When he stooped to look in, he saw only the linen cloths. So he went away amazed at what had happened. Now that same day, two of them were on their way to a village called Emmaus which was about seven miles from Jerusalem. Together, they were discussing everything that had taken place. And while they were discussing and arguing, Jesus himself came near and began to walk along with them. But they were prevented from recognizing him. Then he asked them, what is uh, this dispute that you're having with, with each other over as you're walking? And they stopped walking and they looked discouraged. And the one named Cleopas answered him, Are you the only visitor in Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these days? Uh, What things, he asked them. So they said to him, 
the things concerning Jesus of Nazareth, who was a prophet, powerful in action and speech before God and all the people, and how our chief priests and leaders handed him over to be sentenced to death, and they crucified him. But we were hoping that he was the one who was about to redeem Israel. Besides all this, it's the third day since these things have happened. Moreover, some women from our group astounded us. They arrived early at the tomb, and when they didn't find his body, they came and reported that they had seen a vision of angels who said that he was alive. Some of those who were with us went to the tomb and found it just as the women had said, but they didn't see him. He, Jesus, said to them, How foolish you are, and how slow to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Wasn't it necessary for the Messiah to suffer these things and enter into his glory? Then, beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. They came near the village where they were going, and he gave the impression that he was going farther. But they urged him, stay with us, because it's almost evening, and now the day is almost over. So he went in and stayed with them. It was as he reclined at the table with them that he took the bread, blessed and broke it, and gave it to them. Then... Their eyes were open and they recognized him, but he disappeared from their sight. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he was talking with us on the road and explaining the scriptures to us? That very hour, they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the 11 and those gathered with them and they said, who said, the Lord has truly been raised and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened on the road and how he was made known to them in the breaking of the bread. As they were saying these things, he himself stood in their midst. He said to them, peace to you. But they were startled and terrified and thought that they were seeing a ghost. Why are you troubled? He asked them. And why did doubts arise in your hearts? Look at my hands and my feet, that it is I myself. Touch me. And see, because a ghost does not have flesh and bones, as you see, I have. Having said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they were still amazed and in disbelief because of their joy, he asked them, do you have anything to eat here? So he gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate it in their presence. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures. He also said to them, this is what is written. The Messiah would suffer and rise from the dead on the third day and repentance for forgiveness of sins would be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning at Jerusalem. You are witnesses of these things. And look, I am sending you what my father promised. As for you, stay in the city until you are empowered from on high. Then he led them out to the vicinity of Bethany. And lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy. And they were continually in the temple praising God. Father, thank you for your word. God, thank you for the power that your spirit brings when your word, it comes into our hearts. And so as we sang a moment ago, so we pray now 
Show us Christ. Show us Christ. Help us to see Christ exalted in this passage. Help us to see how we, as the people of God, are to center our worship, are to center our proclamation, are to center our preaching and our living on Jesus. So fix our eyes on him and show us Christ today. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You can be seated. The three aspects that we've covered so far over the last three weeks, that we must be Scripture-fed, servant-led, Spirit-filled, are going to be how we unpack this passage today, to see how these things manifest in a centering, a focus on Christ. So first, what we see is this, is when we are Scripture-fed, we see Christ at the center of God's Word. When we are Scripture-fed, we see Christ at the center of God's word. I want you to see it in the text. Look back at verse 24. Some of those, I'm sorry, verse 27 in chapter 24. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, Jesus interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Look again at verse 32. They said to each other, weren't our hearts burning within us while he talked to us on the road explaining the scriptures to us? And then hop down to verse 44. He told them, these are my words that I spoke to you while I was still with you, that everything written about me in the law of Moses, the prophets, and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then Jesus opened their minds to understand the scriptures. Now let me tell you a couple of things that this doesn't mean. This here in this passage, when we say we want to center on Christ, what we're not saying is that only creatives will see Jesus throughout the Bible. Okay, anybody in this room self-identify as a creative? It's kind of a new term, but it's like you're artsy and creative, you know, more prone to like creating things, coming up with new ideas. Any creatives in the room? Any self-identifying creatives? Only a couple? There's only a few of you in here. How many of you, on the other hand, are driven crazy by creatives, you know, both in the workplace and, uh, yeah, I see more hands. Okay. So, you know, those of us that are creatives, you know, sometimes it can be the tendency to, to see things um, that sometimes aren't there, you know, to see uh, potential in something that's really not, doesn't have so much potential, um, you know, all of those kind of things. And so what this is not saying when I say that we see Jesus in the scriptures is that creatives are at some advantage of putting Jesus in places where really he's not. And the other aspect of what we're not saying in this moment is that, is that we are not talking about seeing Jesus in the Old Testament in some incarnate way. As though Jesus were just constantly popping up throughout history and we were, you know, oh, there he is, oh, there he is. And then finally we get to spend a little bit more time with him, you know, when he comes in the New Testament. That's not what we're saying here either. What I mean by the phrase seeing Jesus in the Old Testament or seeing Jesus in the Scriptures is this. Then beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted for them the things concerning himself in all the Scriptures. On that road that day, Jesus might have said, like he did in John chapter 3, just as Moses lifted up the snake in the wilderness... So the Son of Man had to be lifted up on the cross so that everyone who believes in him would have eternal life. It's a reference to Numbers chapter 21. You see, Jesus might have said on the road that day, like he did in John chapter 6, that Moses 
didn't give you the bread from heaven, but the Father gives you the true bread from heaven. And the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world, referring to himself, referencing Exodus chapter 16. You see, Jesus might have said like Peter did on the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, seeing what was to come, God spoke concerning the resurrection of the Messiah. He, is not a, he was not abandoned to Hades, and his flesh did not experience decay. Quoting Psalm 16. Jesus might have said like Peter did in Acts chapter 4, the stone rejected by you builders has become the cornerstone. Quoting Psalm 118. Jesus might have said like Philip in Acts chapter 8, He was led like a sheep to the slaughter, and as a lamb is silent before its shearer, so he does not open his mouth. And his humiliation, justice, was denied him. Quoting Isaiah 53. Jesus might have said like Paul did in Acts chapter 13, You are my son, today I have become your father. Quoting Psalm 2. Jesus might have said on the road to Emmaus that day, like Paul did in Romans 11, the deliverer will come from Zion. He will turn godliness away from Jacob. And this will be the covenant with them when I take away their sins. Quoting Jeremiah chapter 31. Jesus might have said, like the author of Hebrews, someone superior to the angels, someone according to the high priest order of Melchizedek has come. Someone superior to the Levitical priesthood has come. Someone superior to the temple has come and he has entered in once and for all. A superior covenant, a superior sacrifice, someone who is the author and perfecter of the faith has come. A a, a referencing to the entire Old Testament. You see, we don't have to get creative and we don't have to put Jesus where he is not. You only have to be scripture fed to see that Christ is at the center of God's word. Now let me offer you a simple but practical prayer to pray as you spend time and as we spend time in God's word. I love, let me just say real fast, that on Monday, I told Rick about show us Christ, and he said, yeah, we got that. I love you know, the, the team that we have that leads us. So thank you, brother, for so quickly integrating a song like that that is a prayer of show us Christ. And that's the prayer, that as you read your word, read the word of God at home, and as you then come together and we gather as the body and we're going to sit under the preaching of God's word, may our prayer be, show us Christ. Show us Christ in the Old Testament. Show us Christ in the New Testament. Fix our eyes on Jesus, dear Lord. Show us Christ in your word because we need Christ. And it has to be a prayer because like it was, was I mean, just get your, your mind around this. Jesus The resurrected Jesus is walking with people. I mean, like the text even says, that he says, you know, what are you guys talking about? And you just kind of picture them walking along and they're like, are you kidding me? Are you the only one that doesn't know what has happened here in these days? I mean, you can almost feel that. And they're looking at Jesus now and, and, and they don't recognize him. They keep going with him. And it is not until Jesus, until Jesus opens their minds It's not until Jesus shows and reveals himself that they see him. It's not until Jesus does something that their minds are open to perceive the meaning of all of these passages and that their hearts burned within them. And so we're in that same position. I mean, these were were men that were following Jesus during his life before the resurrection, 
before his death. And yet they, they couldn't see. And so we're in that same position today of God. We're, I could read your Bible and never see Jesus. I, I could gather in church every Sunday of the year and never experience Christ. Never see him. Never really catch a glimpse of my Savior. Never see Christ high and lifted up. Never see the one who was given for the sins of the world. I could keep just going through the motions and never experience him. So therefore, our prayer must be, show us Christ. Open our minds. Give us salve for our eyes to see. We, we need you, God, to, to show us Jesus because we won't see him. And our hearts will not burn within us unless we do. So as we pray and as we gather under the word in our Bible studies, we're going to be gathering in person today. And I hope that you'll make plans to stay in a few moments to attend a Bible study group. But even in that context, and when we gather here, and when you read at home, let our prayer be, show us Christ. Show us Christ. Next, when we are servant-led, we see Christ at the center of the church. When we're scripture-fed, we see Christ at the center of God's word. But when we, the people of God, are servant-led, we see Christ at the center of the church. Which is seen in the text. Look back at verse 33. It says, That very hour they got up and returned to Jerusalem. They found the eleven. It's talking about the eleven apostles. And those who were gathered together who said, The Lord is truly been raised and, was, and has appeared to Simon. Then they began to describe what had happened to them on the road and how he had made known to them, how, was, how he was made known to them in the breaking of bread. And then look down at verse 50. It says again, Then he led them out, of, out to the vicinity of Bethany, and lifting up his hands, he blessed them. And while he was blessing them, he left them and was carried up into heaven. After worshiping him, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy, and they were continually in the temple praising God. Now I want you to observe First, that the two who had the conversation on the road to Emmaus go immediately to the leaders, to the 11, and those that were gathered with them. This is important because the book of Acts is like volume two of a two-volume history or recounting of what happened in the days of Jesus and then in the days of the early church, where the Holy Spirit was at, at work in the body. The 11 are the core of the leadership in the church at the beginning. Something signaled in Luke 24 and then picked up in Acts chapter 1. But, but second, I want you to observe what these leaders are doing and those who are with them. It says in verse 52, after worshiping him, Jesus, they returned to Jerusalem with great joy and they were continually in the temple praising God. Picking up in Acts, we read in Acts chapter 1 verse 14, they were all continually united in prayer. Then in Acts chapter 2, verse 42, we read that they, all the believers, devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. In other words, the apostles are teaching to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. And then in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, we hear the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves to prayer and the ministry of the word. Now that verse in chapter 6, verse 4, is so essential in the life of the church today because pastors have come to be seen as spiritual duct tape, D-U-C-T, duct tape. Now let me first say, before I explain my analogy, that I just made a jump, and you deserve to know why. 
Notice that Acts chapter 1, chapter 2, and chapter 6 are each referring to the apostles. And in my analogy, I quickly made the jump to pastors. So how did I get there? This contains the message of the apostles, which was the expounding of the Old Testament in light of the gospel and of the message of Jesus Christ, and then the message of the gospel and the work of Jesus Christ through the Holy Spirit in the church. So this is where we come to this authoritative message. And to the extent that I today as a pastor, as an elder, as an overseer, to the extent that I proclaim the Bible, I am an extension of the apostolic ministry of the word. Now, I am not an apostle. I'm a pastor. I proclaim God's word given through the prophets and the apostles. So that's how I got there. Back to duct tape. Duct tape, D-U-C-T. Duck, D-U-C-K, is a specific brand of duct tape. Duct tape has countless applications, right? How many of you in this room have ever used duct tape? Anybody? I mean, look at all the hands. How many of you have ever used duct tape on a duct, D-U-C-T? Anybody? Okay, we got a few more. I should have known that you would be the, you know, the group that's actually used them on ducks. Most of us in this room, however, probably have never used duct tape on a duct. Literally, the name carries a strong message of the function of the product. And in the same way, pastor carries a strong message of the intended purpose of the position. Yet because we do not pastor or shepherd animals here in New Orleans. I mean, if I did another poll, anybody in here a shepherd of animals? Looking around, be sure. No shepherds of animals here. We have repurposed the word to, to mean a, a wide variety of functions within the body. But I'm telling you, on the authority of God's word in Acts chapter 6, verse 4, that a pastor, that an overseer, that an elder has three primary functions within the body of Christ. Pastoral leadership, prayer, and the word. Pastoral leadership, prayer, and the word. When the apostles say, but we will devote ourselves, you have just witnessed pastoral leadership. One of the most challenging aspects of leadership is knowing, what, is knowing when others need to be chosen, equipped, and empowered to do something and what you need to devote yourself to doing. The result of this extremely wise pastoral leadership decision is a new group is created in Acts chapter 6. And many think that what we see is the first group of deacons in the church. And the decision was not for the apostles, man, do we feel like serving or not? That wasn't the decision. The decision was this, is this how we need to serve or not? They realized that they were uniquely called to ministry, to the ministry of prayer and the word. And if they neglected that ministry, everything else would suffer. So for the good care of widows, pastoral, and the continued health and growth of the church, leadership, they exercised excellent pastoral leadership 
in selecting seven men full of the Holy Spirit to care for widows. And the passage goes on to say, and the church continued to grow and even priests became obedient to the faith. That was the result of this pastoral leadership. Second, prayer. We talked about it last week, but the reality of the matter is that as the apostles devoted themselves to prayer along with the church, the Holy Spirit moved in power, resulting in bold evangelism and disciples were made. I mean, we just see this over and over again in the book of Acts. Only as we admit our powerless condition to make disciples of all nations, waiting on the Lord, worshiping him, recounting to him his faithfulness, wisdom, justice, and goodness from his word, do we position ourselves to stand firm and experience the mighty movement of the Holy Spirit? Third, the word. Pastoral leadership, prayer, and the word. Specifically, teaching the word. The apostles were continually reading the word. They were continually studying the word. They were continually discussing the word. They were continually teaching the word. And they were continually preaching the word. If First Baptist New Orleans would be a biblically thriving church, then she must have a biblically thriving pastor and deacons. The pastor is to devote himself to pastoral leadership, prayer, and the word. And the, and the deacons are to devote themselves to serving the body in practical biblical ways. Through the cooperative ministry of the pastor and deacons, we see Christ. Don't miss this. It's as these two groups. I mean, Paul would not have devoted such attention in establishing churches and then establishing leaders. I mean, remember in Acts 13 and 14, the man is nearly killed at the hands of a city and then in short order returns to that same city because he knows how important leadership is and he goes back to establish elders in that body at risk of his life. That's how important it is. And as these two groups, these pastors and these deacons are serving together in the body, we see Christ because we see his pastoral leadership. We, we see his dependence on the Father in prayer. We see Jesus' ministry of the word proclaiming the kingdom of God. We see his humble, humble service to his bride, the church. Both pastors and deacons exist to serve Christ in and through the church. Therefore, both are servants in the truest sense of the word, yet they are complementary in their service to the body of Christ. But don't forget, it all starts at home. It starts at home. For each and every person in this room, it starts at home. What seems like a message for only a small group suddenly becomes an invitation for the entire church. Every person and family ought to manifest the character, conduct, and care of Jesus Christ. If Jesus is your Lord, then his character ought to be on you. It ought to be in you. His conduct ought to manifest in your life in the way that you treat others, including those that you share space with. And his care, his gentleness, his firmness of conviction, his unwillingness to not stand for others and to not reach out and touch those that nobody else wanted anything to do with, that ought to manifest you. His care was incredible. I love that it's called the care effect here at First Baptist. And pray that it will continue to have that legacy of a true Christ-exalting care in our city and in the body. When we are servant-led, we see Christ at the center of the church. When we are scripture-fed, we see Christ at the center of the word. And what we see finally is when we are spirit-filled, 
we see Christ at the center of our message. We see Christ at the center of our message. This is what unfolds, First Baptist, when we get in this rhythm of starting to work out our faith in the Word, and we start understanding the significance of godly leadership as being servant leadership, of pastors and deacons in the body, and we pray for those servants, and we trust those servants, and those servants are laying down their lives and sacrificing for the body, and we start kind of humming like that, and we start positioning ourselves, saying, God, in prayer, we are powerless to make disciples of all nations, and God begins to touch us in powerful ways. All of these things start working together, and we go out in our city to make disciples of all nations. We go out among the nations. We join with our brothers and sisters in places like Lesotho, where you've already had a connection and where my dearest friends live. And we start going into the recesses of the mountains to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. And then to to see a Basotho person saying these exact words, my heart was, was burning within me. To hear those words was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. That upon proclaiming the gospel message about God giving his son as as they had experienced manna in the desert, so God had given his son, had given his son that we might have life. The man came up to me and said, I felt as though my, my heart was burning within me. That's what happens when we get in this rhythm and in this continual movement of being Scripture-fed, of being servant-led, of being Spirit-filled, we go out and the message that we proclaim is Christ. It's not us. It's Christ and Christ crucified. For what we proclaim is not ourselves, but Jesus Christ is Lord and ourselves is your servants for Jesus' sake. That's us. That's our message. But we can never, ever, ever divorce the substance of the gospel from the message of the gospel. And I think it is unbelievably important that we remember that today, as we take of the Lord's Supper, that this is what we proclaim. And I don't want you to miss it in the text either because it was as they were breaking bread that their eyes were opened. There continues to be something unbelievably significant in the life of the body of Christ about the, the elements and what they represent. I want you, if you have your Bible, to turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 11 and I want you to see how Paul captures multiple passages that are recorded in the Gospels to communicate a reality about the Lord's Supper and what we do today. If you did not receive one of these upon entering today, if you would just lift your hand, there's going to be some deacons, some folks in the back that will come around and provide one for you. And so if a couple of deacons would be sure that we've got those trays and are coming in to help provide these to those. I see a couple of hands. So if you'll just kind of leave your hand, we'll get that to you in a moment. In chapter 11, Paul writes in verse 23, For I received from the Lord what I passed on to you. On the night when he was betrayed, the Lord Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks and broke it, he said, This is my body, which is for you. 
Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, also he took the cup and after supper said, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And so this is something we're not going to stop because he hasn't come. And as we do this, it actually prepares us for his coming because we remember and we live in light of and we recenter. We center ourselves again on the body of Christ given on the cross for us and his blood, which commenced and sealed a new covenant. And so today I invite you to peel off this top layer and to take the bread. Jesus said, this is my body. And so we do this, which is for you, do this in remembrance of me. And so we do this in remembrance of Christ. Take and eat. And then peeling the next layer carefully. In the same way, also, he took the cup and after supper and said, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. And so today we do take this in remembrance of Christ. Lord, in the same way that you open the eyes of the disciples, of those 11 men and the women and others that were gathered with them, through the breaking of bread to see. I pray today that just the remembering, the tangible reality of the body of Christ, his flesh crucified and his blood physically shed and how we do this in remembrance of the cross of Christ and of his sacrifice, his death for us, that we would then be faithful to your word in Acts 24 that calls for us going out among all nations and proclaiming this gospel message for the repentance of sins, for the repentance that leads to forgiveness of sins. So Lord, fix our eyes on Jesus. Today you may be here, and the reality for you is that today is the first day that your eyes are being opened. Maybe today is the first day, if you're honest, not that you came to church, but that your heart burned within you because you sensed, you saw Christ. You saw your need. Maybe you were confronted, even as I described the self-centered person at the beginning of the service, realizing that's me. My world revolves around self. My life is all about me. And I give lip service to about it being other things, but at the end of the day, it's about me. His body was given for you to rescue you from self and from sin. His blood was shed for you to cover over your sin and to remove that stain of guilt. And the good news is this, Christ was then resurrected on the third day. And in him, you can have life after death. You can have 
life after the death that you've been living. Uh, focus on self and it can experience Christ. And so I'm gonna invite everyone in this room to stand and we're going to sing a song of praise to the one who we focus our lives on, who we focus our hearts on, who we center our church on. But if you're here today and you have never given your life to Jesus, I invite you to come, to come right now. And I want to spend time praying over you as you begin a new life in Jesus Christ. Let's sing.